Hello and welcome back to the Undercut Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jesse Billington, and as always, I'm joined by the peppercorn sourced by mid-rare filet mignon, Ellie Mae Taylor. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I ache a bit. I did a full body workout yesterday, and then this morning I had the great idea of doing an arm and ab workout. So I just had to kind of sit there for half an hour afterwards, not being able to move and just (laughs) contemplate life. Just sit and ache briefly until the pain subsides. Fantastic. I'm also joined by Timo. Timo Albus Daly, he's here, he's with us again. And well, I say again, it makes it sound like a sort of regular contributor. He's one of the co-hosts. How are you, Timo? I'm pretty good, thank you. How about yourself, old chap? Uh, exhausted, tired, in need of yet another like nine to 12 hours sleep. I've spent some of this weekend in France. Arrived in France Friday afternoon. Drove all the way to Le Mans in one hit, spent 16 hours Le Mans doing the classic, and then turned around and drove straight back home again on Sunday, caught the F1 on commentary on the tunnel, and then spent the rest of the time doing a lot of writing and editing the several thousand photographs I took. So yeah, the usual course for me. Wasn't too sunny either, so I didn't get sunburned, which actually makes a change. However, we're not here to talk about the Le Mans Classic. We are instead here to talk about all the action from this weekend's Austrian Grand Prix, as well as take a look at some of the news that's come out of the world of Formula One over the past week. And with that in mind, we're going to launch straight into what the hell has happened. And crucially, we are talking about the very sad news that's come out of Spa over the weekend. We had the 24 hours of Spa, which was preceded by Frecker and the sad passing of Delano van der Hoff, who passed away in a crash uh, in essentially one of the warm-up races for the endurance. The young Dutch driver was racing for MP Motorsports in the series, and from what I've seen, he was tagged by Tim Tremnitz, uh, just beyond the top of Radion, what's actually the Camel Straight at that point. And this is where his car spun, so that was now broadside of the track, where it was collected by Adam Fitzgerald in a very much sort of T-bone incident. The problem here is that this isn't really something that's down to the design of the track or the corners there. The corners have been radically changed over the past few years to improve runoff areas, but Ultimately, this comes down to the spray. And in the spray that we saw over the weekend, we have your know, drivers have essentially a working distance and open open wheel single seaters of around 10 meters, which is hardly enough to provide the needed stopping room for Fitzgerald to have avoided that collision. Compared to the abandoned 2021 Spa Grand Prix, this rain and the wet conditions were just as bad, and somehow the race director deemed it safe to send out a junior racing series. So it's it's a bit odd. This wasn't a crash that's down to uh, Rouge and Radion and the structure there and the runoffs or cars being bounced back onto the circuit. This was sort of callous and almost sort of the hubris of race directors and stewards going ahead with a race that really should have been either postponed or abandoned in those conditions and it's unfortunately led to a very unpreventable death which i think is rather more shocking than anything else so it also asks the very important question do we think that with formula cars getting more and more aggressive aerodynamically we need to take spray and wet conditions more seriously i think sort of aerodynamically or non-aerodynamically we need to take like regardless of the aerodynamics we need to take the rain more serious I mean it's truly awful what happened and I think we often forget how dangerous racing really is because we look at how far safety has come 
And it's like, we've also got to think about the others involved as well. Because I remember that one Manuel Correa saying that when he went into Antoine Herbeau, the way that the Belgium law is, or um, he found himself uh, in his hospital bed with sort of the Belgian police or sort of the law enforcement making him sign an involuntary manslaughter paper to acknowledge that he was the person that killed Antoine. And, you know, this is at the exact same track. So unless the law has changed, a young teenager has had to sign papers that he's involuntarily killed someone. And you've got to think, imagine how, what impact that has on you. Like, they now have to live with that for their entire for their entire lives. So it's, it's had a huge impact on so many people. And we need so we need to remember that, or the stewards need to remember this and... Yeah, they need to. If if it is raining out as bad as Spa can be, we they need to stop the stop the race and postpone it, cancel it, whatever. Because we can't we can't have this. There's there's definitely the scope for looking at the broader picture of what happens in the consequences of these crashes. When you have, like you said, with Juan Manuel Correa crashing into Antoine Hubert, this was a crash that immediately under Belgian law was pinned on. Correa because simply he was the person that was directly involved in it and it's something that spans out so broadly and can begin to impact a far broader sort of span of people than simply the drivers involved in it. Timo have you got a thought on the idea of sort of racing in the rain and the fact that possibly regulations need to change to sort of be aware of the fact that in these cars you do not see anything in the rain essentially? I'm going across the entire thing so maybe this was a consideration that was undertaken by the stewards at the time but as a precursor to the 24-hour race why not postpone that freco race until after the 24 hours if they usually start around mid-afternoon anyway so by the time it would have been done the following day the weather could have been completely different and even if it wasn't it was still absolutely chucking it down why not just postpone that round and have a double header at a different venue you see that with the European Le Mans series, for example, they were meant to race in Imola, but obviously with all the flooding there, no one went racing there. And, and so now they have a double header at the end of the season in Porto now. F1, by contrast, just scrapped the whole thing. You don't need it. You should be putting the safety of the drivers first. And when you have these cars where, for whatever reason, whilst we've had all the improvements with health and safety, you still haven't been able to figure out how to improve visibility when there is this much braking of the cars maybe just don't race and wait for a better time to do it because as Eddie may said maybe some people have just forgotten quite how dangerous it is because of how safe it is at the same time but you need something like this to only happen to wake you up to that shock of it and you're kind of thinking that didn't need to happen you could have just said okay we're not going to go racing today it's not worth the risk that it will be probably pretty happy with that. I don't think anyone's going to be disagreeing with that sort of a decision and is going to be actively fighting for it. And if they are, that's a bit of a silly thing and it would be on them. I mean, you think back to Japan with James Hunt and Nikki Lauda and how long ago that was and how much could have gone wrong there in comparison to what did. And it's quite remarkable that they got out of that. But then you have, fast forward however many years, 2023, massive improvements and everything across the board and you're going out in those conditions when you really don't need to yeah i think you always become desensitized when you see drivers walking away from relatively big shunts you've only got to look at indycar simon pagino walking away from a car that barrel rolled seven or eight times after suffering a brake failure at mid ohio 
the fact that single-seater cars are so safe to this point that you can walk away from those crashes. Roman Grosjean walking away from a fireball at the end of 2020, wasn't it? I think it was. And all of a sudden, you you begin to genuinely see the drivers and the cars as being quite invincible. So you're almost quite lax when it comes to sending mountain in conditions that genuinely are not safe. And we saw Formula One learn that in a relatively safe way in 2021 at Spa, where we saw Norris have a massive shunt that pretty much disassembled his car around him. And he was lucky to walk away from that completely uninjured. But it again, re-emphasised how treacherous those conditions are. And then to essentially not learn from that in a lower series where you've got drivers that are less experienced in cars that generally speaking are trickier to handle they don't have anywhere near as much downforce they don't have the mechanical grip from the same high level of tires that you get in formula one to send them out in those same conditions near as much it's it's max of sort of the worst element of hubris and yeah it's Single seater and most sometimes it's one thing to get desensitized to it, but as stewards and the people in charge of it, whose actual job it is to be aware and across of everything, there isn't really an excuse for getting desensitized to that because you should be aware, especially when you're at Spa with the recent things that have happened. Norris, who bear every every other little kind of crash that's happened that's maybe not been anywhere near as serious, but it's still worth looking at and think, hmm, maybe we wait a minute. It would just be worth taking that extra moment, I think. And I, it goes without saying that obviously our thoughts and prayers go out to the family of Delano Van Hoff and sort of we wish that in this sort of troubled time they're able to sort of pull together and sort of, I don't want to say move on from it. It's not really a thing you can move on from, but equally I hope that for the other drivers involved in this incident, this is something that they're able to look back upon and have learned from, but equally know that it's not wholly going to be their fault. They should not have been racing in those conditions. You've got to think as well. I mean, I don't know how different tyres are for different series and all that, but it's I, for the Formula One, the amount of spray that will come off a tyre because they shed so many litres of water at times to have that grip, that's then going obviously behind them and that's what's causing the spray. You can't see in front of you. So why are they doing it? This weird concept that you have to go racing, whatever the costs, that the racing comes first more than anything. And it's something that seems to be sort of creeping in more and more is there has to be this spectacle for the fans and the people watching. We've seen it in the annoying developments of Formula One with things like the sprint, that the spectacle always comes first. But it now looks as though that's possibly in other series starting to veer towards the unsafe, let alone the unentertaining. It's an interesting thing after Senna died, Martin Brundle said that it was interesting how it suddenly became unacceptable to die in the name of motorsport. And you didn't really have anything since then, bar the obvious Jules Bianchi in what was kind of a very freak accident, but again, wet conditions there. If you compare it to a lot of the other ones, with the exception of Grosjean, which again, he survived, but it's all kind of been in wet conditions where this stuff has happened. And you just think, okay, are we somehow, for, who, who needs to die for everyone to take it seriously again then? Because apparently you've not taken it seriously the last couple of times. Yeah, where where is that sort of threshold? Whose name are you going to pin down as being the one who's, that matters? Big enough. Yeah, I think this is almost something that Stroll hinted at in his um, interview in the paddock 
after the sprint and he seemed genuinely quite shaken by the news and everything and he he has this sort of this almost understanding that he knows that that could be him at some point and he's very grounded in that sort of understanding that he knows what he does is dangerous and he knows that always begin to possibly question that whether putting his life on the line half the weekends of any given year is truly worth it and i it's it was interesting looking or sort of psychoanalyzing in a way the way he responded to that to that question the way he wanted to talk about that it, it's something that's clearly weighing on his mind max verstappen also kind of also said how you know when you're young you've also kind of got that sense that you're almost one invincible but also you're trying to prove yourself as a driver to get somewhere. So you're going to be pushing in those conditions no matter what, probably going faster than you should be. So then it's the stewards who should say, no, we need to stop this race because the drivers are going to push no matter what because that's what's in their nature. So it needs sort of an external factor for them to sort of stop it. Mm, there's there's something about it all that doesn't ring true as to what really needs to be sort of coming out of this and i know that verstappen was was not pleased about it but we'll we'll see if there's an interest if there's any development at all from frecker moving forwards we'll move on to our next news item which is the sad news that bob fernley has passed away following a short illness yeah we're really not doing one good news this weekend but uh as you say jesse he passed away following short illness and he was well known for running Force India back when it was Force India. And uh, he was running it for the controversial businessman Vijay Malia, who we all remember as being an interesting character in Formula 1 himself. He ran it for a decade after Malia's acquisition of the team. And he was most recently head of motorsport governing body, the FIA single seat commission from 2020 to 2022. But then under Force, when he was kind of in charge of Force India, he kind of forged a reputation for overachieving. We've talked about this, I think, when we were just starting out on this podcast, I think back when Force India Racing Point at that point were doing well in Bahrain and Sakir, and we weren't kind of expecting them to be doing quite that well that season. Um, so overachieving despite the limited financial resources available to them. He oversaw podium finishes for Fisichella in 2009 at Belgium, Eric in 2014, in 2015, and both the Monaco and the European Grand Prix in 2016, as well as, as Baku in 2018. So some really good drives and performances out there from his leadership and kind of this underdog mentality of we're going to be hampered by how much capital we've got here, but we're but it's gonna we're gonna get somehow make it work. You know, it would be very interesting to see what a character like him could have done in the cap and put him in charge of Hass or Alfa Romeo or Williams or some somewhere like that to see what he could get out of it. He then left Force India once Lawrence Stroll bought the team in 2018, moved to IndyCar with McLaren in 2019. That didn't go too well for him because of Unso with um the Indy 500 not quite going to plan, hence his move over to single seaters there with the FIA, but just pretty much a nice guy all around. Everyone in Paddock, one of these figures who they all had time for him. And I think that says a lot about his character. Yeah, certainly one of those one of those behind the scenes people that very much defined a period of racing for 
one of those teams that's always been interesting in the way that it's dabbled around the midfield and sort of swung punches at the top end of it and achieved podiums when really it shouldn't have. And yeah, it speaks speaks volumes for his effort that he put in sort of managing the team through a very tumultuous period, especially under VJ Malia, the sort of, uh, I want to say the proto um, William Story in a way, the sort of slightly dodgy businessman that's got his fingers in. William the Story wishes. Yeah, um, William Story wishes his his flirtatious uh, spell with Formula One was that uh, successful, but yeah, it's it's. I think it it's. it's I find it interesting as well that he didn't stick with Aston Martin longer. I'm not entirely sure if that was a mutual decision or just Lawrence or whatever there, because I feel like he would have fit in long term in that team, especially the last year or two with. I like what we're planning here and we've now got the budget to really go for it and his years of experience might have been very much key for that for them in the team and we know that Aston Martin likes to recruit just about everyone who's ever been in motorsport at some point to be in an advisory role so I wonder if that was never an option I'll try and do some digging maybe and find that out. We do also have some more news though that's actually related to Austria itself because F1 had a pilot program there to promote a more efficient energy generation system, delivering an estimated 90% of carbon reduction of the operation of the paddock, the pit lane, and the F1 broadcast area in comparison to last year's Grand Prix. So the trial is rolled out as F1 continues to explore sustainable solutions to power events in the future as part of its wider strategy to reach net zero in 2030. So as a low carbon system is used to power all the garages and motorhomes belonging to F1, F1 teams and the FIA, as well as the pit wall, the timing room and the F1 event technical centre where the at-track broadcast operations are housed. The energy system produced enough energy to meet peak and continuous demand over the race weekend and was powered by more sustainable sources, including a hydro, hydro-eated, sorry, sorry, hydro-treated, apparently a difficult word to say, vegetable oil. Uh, biofuel and 600 meter squares of solar panels on the inner field of the final corner at the Red Bull Ring. So that provided an estimated 2.5 million watts of energy across the event. And uh, essentially, the plan, the pilot plans to create a more efficient and sustainable operation system. So, with potential for even higher reductions, but also make it easier and more reliable to power the event, not just there, but probably then to test that at other circuits and removing the teams, the need for teams to provide their own generators. So got a lot of data from all of that that we can use for not only future Austrian Grand Prix, because there's going to be quite a few more of them, as we'll get to later, but hopefully that can be then something where we can roll that out across the board, because even though the biofuels, for example, is one area where F1 is looking to reduce their carbon footprint, that's obviously not their main thing in travel and actual events and all of that kind of stuff is a bigger part of it and it would be great to help get that side of things down it's good to see them making this sort of a move and i think it's something that possibly they or i'd like to think they've learned from the likes of extreme e which very much had its own sort of traveling power pack that moves around with the series across the globe themselves and the the fact that they've been able to find this interesting way of using different power sources to generate the power usage needed for across the weekend 2.5 million watt hours is a hell of a lot of push to be getting out of a system and i think this speaks for the broader technical implications that come out of formula one we often think about it as being just the cars that sort of come out of each individual teams but formula one in and of itself as a sort of brand as a unit as a technical center has its own engineers and its own development teams and it's interesting to sort of see very much an individual product of their efforts and it's it's good to see it coming i 
whether or not it's just something that's good for show and how sort of long-term impactful this is going to be in the long-term practicalities of it, I think we have yet to see. But we also need to see how much of this trickles down to other sports, motorsports, wide replications. We see this a lot with the technical developments of the cars coming into road cars for a few of the Formula 1 teams as well, where they've got that available to them. So maybe this will have some kind of a secondary benefit as, as such that uh, we don't know about yet. The broader span out to other racing series will certainly be useful. And if they've again, much like Extreme E have proved to have got the sort of practicality and the travelability, I want to say, is probably the portability of the system um, down, it'll be something that would be very useful to the likes of WRC and other series that tend to sort of bounce around to relatively off the grid locations. These smaller categories, not smaller categories, but there's less races, but they, like you say, bounce around more often. So it'd be very easy for them to then take that and be carbon neutral pretty much straight out of the box. Then once mm-hmm. the technology's down, so that would be, you could even then, if you want to add a bracket or two, because it would make no difference. Yeah, I think WRC would be a very good or interesting sort of testing point to put it into. And equally, other sort of long distance races, Baja and Dakar, the likes WEC. of those would be really good. WEC would be an interesting one because they have a huge power demand for far longer spans of racing. But if they're able to pull it off, if WEC could prove it, I think they'd be arguably the more technologically demanding series. Seems like they... the next big challenge for it because like you said, the others aren't lesser, but in terms of power hungriness, like you say, there is a lot more from from those beasts. Mm-hmm. Wake could certainly do it. I think MotoGP would be an interesting one to do because then you've also got to add into the fact that you've got Moto E in that series where you've got to be charging up elect- a lot of electric, high power electric vehicles on a race weekend plus MotoGP Moto2 and Moto3, I want to say as well, also running the same sort of weekends. So you've got four classes of racing, one of which is electric, plus all the teams to support. If that works, that would also be a very interesting one indeed. I think, I mean, I really like the idea, but it's, I guess, the interesting thing is kind of like you said, the portability of it all, because how much is it going to take to actually sort of take this around the road in Europe? It's not so bad because you can probably take it on a DHL lorry or something like that. That's powered by renewable fuel, a bit like what Coldplay do, but how are you going to take that over to the Americas or something like that? Are you going to then have a different generator system over there? That's purpose like the purposes of the of the americas what what how are they gonna i guess do it there's two possible answers for this anyone who's a fan of ted's notebook will know that essentially you have three usually different set three or possibly even more sets of kit for an f1 team and you'll have one that simply sent off to do the americas so teams had a kit that started out in miami was then trucked up to canada to do canada then it'll come down, it'll do Cota, it'll then truck into Mexico and then turn around and head back up to uh, Las Vegas. Then you've got air freight that will have been used for some of the more extreme races. So your likes of, I want to say, Australia um, will have probably then headed up to, I think it's Japan, and then I think it eventually heads on and meets them in Sao Paulo. So you have, and then obviously all the European stuff just bounces around the back of lorries for the entirety of the season. And then a few other bits get sort of air freighted into the Middle East races. So you do have this sort of regionalized sets of kit. So you would be able to have essentially four different iterations of this sort of efficient energy generation system running off your biofuels and your ET and powering your ETCs. 
bouncing around the globe for all of its sort of regionalized series and equally as formula one they keep rumbling on about it they are looking to try and streamline their events calendar year next year which they haven't confirmed the running order of anything next year but they are moving more and more towards this idea of simply having them all in one sort of makes it make sense global sweep where you simply start in one location and then draw a big line without having to backtrack on yourself to get to the end of it or backtrack too much because some race is still going to pay more than others to host the first and or last race but yeah you'll have essentially three or four of them your other option is uh, a new tech startup idea that's come out of silicon valley this week which was simply the idea of having giant cargo ships pulled around by big kites so essentially silicon valley has reinvented the sailing vessel which i think is absolutely fantastic and shows just how needlessly out of touch they all are but i guess though if they actually streamline the um f1 calendar then they won't actually, I mean, you'll need in, for like infrastructure, I guess, still stick to your same kits because you can't take, like, I, and I mean that in sort of F1, um, the team sort of motorhomes because mm. they have like the smaller versions um, when they go to sort of the Americas and whatnot, but you can't really have a, like a smaller version of like a generator for an actual race. But I guess if it's streamlined, it can then quite nicely follow where it's going rather than sort of having to ship it from Europe then to America back to Europe back to America if it yeah. sort of continually flows nicely yeah the idea is a relay race yeah we'll no longer have the big sort of continent hopping phases like we've sort of seen with Miami and Canada being where we sort of do a bit of Europe we go to Miami we do a bit of Europe we go to Canada we do a bit more Europe and then we have a summer break and then we finish off Europe and then we go to like Asia and then America and then finish off America and then go back to the East. If you're going to have to start in Bahrain and Abu Dhabi and then end in Abu Dhabi, just move around the globe and just keep going that way. And yeah, nothing more to it. It is it is relatively simple once you start lining everything up in a sensible order. And I think to negate having to use so much shipping costs or to utilize efficient shipping, you would simply have like things you can send ahead like things you know you're always going to need, such as your pit guns, your pit box setups and everything, simply ship that all to each continent ahead of time. And then that can simply be trucked with the rest of your stuff that's then air freighted out to the first race on each continent. And that way you have you can sort of cut back on it. And then all you need to do is hire another sort of two lorry loads to do your power setups. I think it, there's definitely a way of doing it. And I think all it takes is one sort of sensible person with a big Excel spreadsheet and a giant map of the world to sort of pencil it all in. Speaking of um, shipping parts around the world and important parts, uh, Norris ran upgrades to his McLaren side pods, engine cover and floor this weekend, while Piastri ran the standard car. Both drivers, though, will have the full scope of upgrades for Silverstone. This is part of the sort of rolling wave of upgrades that McLaren are looking to roll out over the next essentially three races, Austria included, so Austria, Silverstone and Spa will see new bits being attached to the McLaren. But yeah, it's it's interesting to see how impactful those pieces appear to have been. Yeah, I mean, McLaren realised they'd gone down the wrong route with their floor design and it means sort of, as a result, apart from the front wing, they've had to change every other part of the car to be simultaneously upgraded to fit with that new floor because whilst we kind of speak about the cars being in sections, they all have to fit in one nice cohesive piece. 
And yeah, like you said, I think it was the new floor, which features an updated fence floor edge and diffuser shape, fully revised side pod that is a lot more like Red Bull and Aston Martin. They've also done a new sort of aerodynamic halo, changed the mirrors, and they've shrunk their engine covers and revised their rear wing and suspensions. They've done a huge amount. And like you said, they were they're meant to be for Silverstone fast track to Norris, um, for Norris's car for Austria. And I think whilst you have to wait a few races to know whether your upgrades have been successful or not. They were quite successful in Austria, so I think you can you can be positive about it. I mean, there were still at times Lando struggled to sort of with cornering a bit sometimes. You saw it mainly sort of in, in turn one when I think I can't remember who he had behind him um when he was fighting the but he kind of struggled when he was sort of in that fight to keep whoever it was behind him. I want to say it was one of the Mercedes, but I'm not entirely sure um and as well it's hard to compare it to the old spec car when oscar piastri had uh front wing damage at the almost near the start of his race so it kind of completely ruined his race so you can't sort of fully compare the upgrades against the old spec but i think Still, I think it, it it was a huge step in the right direction, and I definitely think you can take take positives just from just from this race. It is also worth noting that McLaren do and Norris in particular do pretty well at Austria. So it's I want to wait until that three race period is over before making a final judgment. I know you're not making a final judgment, but it may just be a case of Norris does really well around there normally, and McLaren normally does pretty good around there. The combination of the two plus the low bar that they had with their car already. Maybe we weren't expecting P4. I mean, no one was expecting P4 because we didn't see that on track anyway, but that's a different thing. Um, but it's it's definitely a positive start, but it'll be interesting to see how that then translates to Silverstone and the Hungaroring after that. So, potentially, three very different tracks and all very challenging in different ways. Yeah, it's a pinch of salt to carry forward with those McLaren upgrades. It's good looking from the onset. I think we've got to see Silverstone being a very traditional, very flat circuit will give the teams a chance to sort of figure out exactly how that all works and equally look at how it's going to work once it's on Piastri's car and you can then look at the balance against the two. Hungary, yeah, I completely forgot about that when I mentioned it earlier, is going to obviously show, um, again, slightly different aspects to it, very much sort of the slow and medium speed corners there will highlight um, rear end activity and the ability for the car to sort of fence in low speed air and then obviously we do still have Spa before the summer break, which will give them a chance to look at some proper high-speed issues. And then you've got the summer break where they won't really be able to do much, but they'll have a plan moving forwards into the second half of the season for certain. I guess sort of the point you made, how how well the McLaren will be in the Hungary ring with sort of the slow to medium speed corners is quite interesting because their main focus has been the aerodynamics and having less drag down the straights. So it will be sort of how well then do they do in other sections of the tracks mm. it'll be all yeah the sort of balance between the getting the car toned to high speed circuits but equally not to the point that it becomes front or rear end limited where it's starting to lack grip due to sort of wing attack angles 
But with all the cars set up, and of course the McLarens now run, well, one of the McLarens running its new side pods, we moved into qualifying, where Verstappen enjoyed a typically ruthless run in qualifying on Friday, a complete counter to what Perez was able to achieve, constantly hampered by track limit violations, rather setting the tone for the weekend. Further down the field, the Ferraris enjoyed a competitive Friday, with both drivers close to the times of Verstappen. Norris was another driver to impress late on the Friday, his upgraded McLaren surging up the order, a strong award for the Woking outfit as they seek to remedy what's been a problematic chassis since 2021. Stroll surprisingly had the rub of the green over his teammate. Maybe this was an Alonso off weekend. His pace certainly not as strong as we've seen so far this season, but it's good to see Stroll now getting to grips with the competent Aston Martin AMR23. Standout qualifying performances, though, have to go to the Haas of Nico Hülkenberg and Alex Albon in the Williams, Nico in P8 and Alex in P10, both ahead of typical predictions for their cars. When it came to the sprint shootout, aka qualifying for the sprint race, the tyre rules have been modified, or were modified this weekend rather, enabling drivers and teams who made it through to sprint qualifying three. So they call it sprint qualifying three. The whole thing is called sprint shootout, a bit confusing, um, to use any set of soft tyres, whereas they were previously required to use new soft tyres for SQ3. Uh, this change was made after Lando Norris could not run in SQ3 at the Azerbaijan Grand Prix due to his exhausting his allocation of soft tyres. Perez had a better Saturday than Sunday, though, with his bad luck transferred to Hamilton. His SQ1 deleted, relegating him to P18, and his teammate fared no better. P15 for Russell with no legal time set in SQ2. I can't believe they call it SQ something. It sounds like the sporty range of Audi SUVs. That's really annoying. It's almost as if it's completely pointless. Somewhat. Norris continued to press home the advantage of his improved McLaren, while both Haas cars ran well with the opening session of Saturday, um, both making the top 10, Magnussen in P10 and Hülkenberg in P4. After that, the major take-home from it was Charles collecting a three-place grid drop for impeding Piastri and a decently engaging qualifying, and one that... Where was he supposed to go, though? What? In that moment? I don't know. It was really unfair. Because that is the really stupid pit lane entrance. Why not just not make it that you enter at that point? You wait until you're in the corner, you can dive off them because you're right on the racing line. Claire could not go anywhere else. He either goes way off to the left and gets done for track limits, or he goes on the grass. And either way, he can't get in the pits then, and he's just being more awkward out of it. So it seemed very stupid. I'm not mad almost at the stewards for that. I'm mad at Leclerc and Ferrari for that because... You could have very easily argued in the stewards' room that you had nowhere to go because you were going in the pits. But instead of that, Char went, yeah, I kind of knew he was behind me. I could have sped up, but I didn't. So it was his own fault that he then got the penalty. He could have missed out on that for a very fair reason that he had nowhere to go. I won't defend Charles not being smart enough there because, like you say, there's not really any defence for it. but. You put any other driver in that position then and you just like and you have the same situation. You're still like, well, where are you supposed to go? You're just gonna automatically impede by default. So again, it's another problem with Austria and the track that well, we'll get to the other main one later, but maybe just change it as a, instead of having Charles just shoot himself in the foot by not going for the correct argument. The problem I is that his honesty though. The honesty is good, but the problem is if you do sit way over to the left, so essentially keep off the racing line going through turn nine, you've then basically got to come all the way across the track to make it in in time for 
the pit entry where it essentially starts and when you can no longer cross the white line you then essentially almost put your car broadside to everything that's coming pretty much near flat or at least at 80 percent throttle through turn nine so all of a sudden you've got this point where cars are literally turning across another to try and get to the pit entry just make it start a bit later so cars have a bit more of a chance to get down the pit lane speed limiter doesn't even come until they've gotten round turn 10 so you could really push the sort of entry point of the pit a lot further down the hill it's something that probably hasn't been changed for a good long while and bear in mind how long we've been racing at the red bull ring there's been such a limited development of the track that you could argue that the speeds that modern cars come around pit turn nine isn't really in keeping with the sort of layout for that pit entry i will also say do you reckon you would have been that honest if it was actual qualifying and not the sprint qualifying where it actually mattered? Because the sprint, face it, a lot of the drivers don't care too much for it anyway. Oh no, I've missed out on maybe eight points maximum in a battle that we're not going to win anyway this year. So, oh, I'll just have a couple of places back. I'll be honest about it. If it was qualifying, I'd have been very intrigued to see if it's been as honest. I don't know whether it has anything to do with that or not, because you still want to, like, even if you don't... If you're not bothered by the sprint, you still want to start as high up as possible, surely, to then actually end up the sprint being worthwhile and getting a point. Yeah, and equally, when you're Charles Leclerc, where are you in relation to drivers around you points-wise? Um, I've got to Austria. Charles Leclerc on 72 points. Science is currently 10 points ahead of you. Uh, you're tied with George Russell on points. So every point really does matter. Um, your next nearest car is admittedly a long way behind you. But yeah, you've really got to pull your finger out if you want any chance of at least beating your teammate. Surely you're going to want those points from the sprint. It's every point matters at this point, even if you're not admittedly going to be catching the likes of Verstappen, Perez and maybe Alonso. But there's still a battle going on that he's going to want those points for. So it was an odd move from Leclerc and certainly one that speaks to a few issues with the circuit that we will very much get to in due course. The sprint saw a podium, well, not really a podium, it was just like a handing out of little like plaque things, of uh, P1 Verstappen, P2 Perez, P3 Sainz, and certainly one of the stronger entries into the sprint record books. Action throughout the field saw the order jumble up as drivers settled backwards or regained positions. The net result was a short 100 kilometres of racing action. After a brief tussle, Verstappen began to pull away from the field, eventually coming home with a 21-second lead, however. Though, if you want gaps, uh, and the best one to look for, though, has to be the 0.009 seconds separating Ocon and Russell across the line. Some proper fighting out there, and Ocon did say he really enjoyed having a bit of wheel-to-wheel -wheel action with some guys he's enjoyed racing with since karting. And again, when you put them side by side in not actually equal machinery, I'd probably argue that Mercedes is a step ahead of the Alpine, really goes to show the, the wheelmanship that Ocon's got. And when he's pushed, he can still really hang on to with the with the best of them, I'd say. When it's not his teammate. When it's not his teammate, yeah, he does have a brilliant record of clattering into his teammate. The record books won't show it. Show him 30 seconds behind. Yeah, no, they'll show him 30 seconds behind in the race. In the sprint, he was fine. In the race, 
Yeah, we'll get on yeah, to that. Of course, the sprint, yeah. Yeah, he didn't pick up any tracking yeah. violations in the sprint, but in the race, different matter. Uh, we'll move on to that. In, as, that is, sorry, that is a point, though. They didn't... Did anyone get a penalty in the sprint for go, for track limits? Uh, they were just very well behaved and nothing at all happened there. No, nobody, nobody did. The only only note from um, the sprint is that though Bottas qualified nineteenth, he started from the pit lane because uh, he made a pit stop during a formation lap, and his place on the grid was left vacant. Other than that, that, that that's literally the only note how to take away that, from it. How does that work? I, I I don't know. Did they just decide not to look at track limits? Perhaps because it's wet, they just assumed the cars are going to be sliding around a bit more. Given uh, that, that was it. They stayed off the um, curbs and the white lines because it's wet. Mm. Yeah, that'll be why. That would have been why. So we'll move on to the race, which wasn't wet. So they were really policing track limits. And uh, it very much meant that the ratification of the results rattled on into the evening. Austria is prime for track limits due to its unique corner structures featuring tarmac and concrete runoff areas as opposed to gravel immediately beyond the white lines. However, there was no appropriate means of staying on top of the stewarding of this. Limit infractions were being handed out 10 laps or so or more after the incident, meaning drivers had no way of knowing immediately to tighten lines or watch for exit speeds and lateral transitions. While it didn't impact the standings for the season, it's been a nightmare to keep track of for the race results and slightly rejigged the finishing order. Ocon picked up 30 seconds, which as far as I'm aware, surpasses the previous record for most time penalties picked up by any one driver in a race, which was actually held by him at Bahrain earlier this season, where he picked up three separate penalties. Um, Austria has been confirmed on the calendar until 20. 30, further extending its existing contract from 2027. So surely something has to be done about this. Jack Aitken, who was giving commentary over on the BBC and other drivers after the race, went on record to say that limits need to be better enforced with grass or gravel. It's a solution that appropriately penalises drivers for exceeding track limits without resulting in over 1,200 laps to be investigated by the stewards. If you saw the tome that Aston Martin walked down to the stewards' office with, it was hefty. And moreover, Alonso messaged his former coffee boy, Lando Norris, to tell him to keep an eye on what's happening and to guess who's getting hit with what. Which really Apparently he also texted Charles Leclerc with just a single word saying, busted. Whoops. <laughs> I love the fact that Alonso is just stirring the pot at this point. Uh, but it does ask the bigger question, should Austria look at tweaking its problematic corners with old school gravel traps? I'm in two minds about this. Because, like, brick wall. Rules are rules to stay in the white line. But then at the same time, it was so difficult. Well, it seems to be difficult for them to do it. The problem is, is if you then put a gravel trap on the outside and they keep dipping into it or spinning out or whatever, you're then going to get a red flag because they've then got to sweep up the gravel because it's too dangerous to stay there. So, and then Either we just do away with track limits there completely or put up some temporary fixture there because I know that F1's only there once a year and they race a bunch of other categories there the rest of the time that they don't need that stuff for. And you have something solid enough or you put some grass there instead. They don't go on the grass on the other. They don't. You don't get many track limits, if any, in the portion of the track where it's grass on the outside because they know that's not going to benefit them. So why not just do something similar there 
saves the gravel trap problem, like you were saying about Eddie May, and we don't get with legs that way. And Bob Jungle. Or just do away with having track limits as a thing anyway on that particular thing, because we get it year in, year out. They say they're going to do something about it, and they never do. With the latter, why don't they kind of ignore it? Because, I mean, if they're like a little bit out, fine. If they're quite a bit out, then maybe track limits, fine. But I know that, you know when we, the F1 used to do drive-through penalties instead of sort of adding five seconds or however long? Because the pit lane is so short at Silverstone, they didn't deem a drive-through penalty sort of punishable enough. So you ended up having a 10-stop-go penalty instead. So if they can change the rules for more punishable um, outcomes for, like, just a circuit, why can't they just kind of let track limits go for Austria? I suppose at Silverstone, you're adjusting a penalty to make it essentially sort of the same across the rest of the season at the rest of other circuits, where generally speaking, a drive-through penalty will, you'll spend 30 seconds essentially driving through the pits and you're doing that at a lower speed. So the net result isn't entirely 30 seconds added to your race time. Um, but with Austria, what you're asking them to do is change how they enforce a rule as opposed to a penalty. I think that's the different thing. And you can't go, oh, we'll just give them a little bit because how do you define a little bit? And then it becomes very subjective as to how you apply that to 20 cars doing 71 laps, possibly with track limits in more corners than that. So you're already looking at somewhere in the region of in if what every car does it, on every lap, you're looking at 140 instances of it. And then obviously some drivers doing that more than once around a lap. Hence the reason why we got up to well over 1,200 of them. It's a big number to ask to all of a sudden give a very subjective answer to. I think the white line worked well on the grounds of if all four wheels go beyond that limit of the white line, you're done for. If you've got gravel there, drivers won't be going there because unless you're George Russell at Mugello in 2020, you're not finding a fast line through the gravel. No one's keeping their foot pinned across the gravel. The car's skittering all over the place and it's not a fast line. So it very much encourages drivers away from it. I definitely think there's there's reason to be said for it. Or alternatively, you do just simply go down the route of going, it's Austria, we can't enforce it. It doesn't make sense here. In the same way that you don't get it in like some American series at certain circuits where they just go, screw it, we're not just we're not doing track limits here. I think I want to say IndyCar at Cota has it. I know that NASCAR in the Cup series around Cota really doesn't bother with track limits around there because those cars are all over the shop. Um, but yeah, it's it's a weird balance. And I think there's there's arguably a better way of doing it than simply going we won't enforce track limits. I say you keep enforcing track limits, but you also have the gravel there to stop it happening anywhere near as much. And it will force the drivers to race a bit differently and could mix things up a little bit. If all of a sudden you can't just keep pushing it wide on exit every time and just kicking up and sort of just running a little bit wide, you've got to really tighten up your line. You've got to change your angle of attack and that's going to change the way you enter a corner, which opens up the opportunity for a dive bomb or an overtake and possibly promotes better action. Were, weren't the curbs more raised and then it was causing too much damage, so they lowered them? They do have 
fairly aggressive curbs. It's not in the same way as like a sausage curb, but it vibrates quite violently. I believe at Austria, it's sort of very choppy and sort of essentially rumble strippy. And I... previous years, we've had drivers suffering from that shaking sensors loose and causing electrical issues. But I don't think that that would particularly be the reason either. I think just very much having an old school gravel trap simply as soon as the white line ends, that would stop drivers pushing it to the limit. Yeah, because I think it used to sort of damage front wings more so than anything. So that would keep them off. If it was going to damage the front wing, which then would aerodynamically really hurt their car. On the old style cars, you used to see them getting the front wings getting wobbled around a lot to the point that they were being abraded on the bottom surface as they sort of touched against the ground, constantly sort of flopping around and basically clipping the ground. And that would wear away the bottom edge of essentially there's the tiny little winglet that runs along the bottom of the end plate, wearing that away to the point that it sort of doesn't do its job anymore appropriately. And you do lose a bit of that front end. But then you've also got that thing of introducing bigger and bigger curbs to motorsport. We've seen what big curbs, i.e. sausage curbs, do to drivers. Abby Eaton, for one, it's sort of not particularly an optimistic direction to send motorsport in, I'd say. Nonetheless, with the Grand Prix underway and eventually finished, uh, Verstappen in the end came home to an unflustered win. The dominance was on show again, but with a new font. This time it showed off his trust in the team. Max pushed it to pit as he finished lap 69, exiting onto lap 70 with fresh tyres and warming them quickly to set the fastest lap on the final tour of the circuit. Knowing you have a team that can pull off that stop and that pressure where you've got a pit window and a little extra in hand is immense and speaks volumes not only for the form he's carrying this season but also that of the team at Milton Keynes. Leclerc came home to a strong P2. Optimistically I'll say that this is him getting back on form but I'd also like to think I'm learned enough to take this with a sizable salt flat worth of salt. Perez earned his P2 and worked his way through the field well and fought past a hard battling Carlos Sainz. Sainz at one point was looking to let Norris catch up to him, giving the young Brit a DRS toe behind him, knowing that the Ferrari still had the legs to keep the Papaya car behind him, but it would make Norris a harder target for Perez to get past, hoping that Perez would either burn up his tyres or simply not be able to get past him in time, holding on Sainz's podium position there. Sainz's results don't really speak it, but he's really running a good season at the moment, and one of brilliant consistency, especially compared to his 2022 form, which was a bit choppy. Nonetheless, this marks the 10th consecutive win for Red Bull from Abu Dhabi last year to Austria this year. This ties them with Mercedes, who've managed to do 10 on the bounce three times. Japan 2015 to Russia 2016, Monaco 2016 to Singapore 2016, and Brazil 2018 to France 2019. Ferrari have also had a 10-race spread of domination, Canada 2002 to Japan 2002 in the Schumacher years, though at the top of the back-to-back race wins chart, is McLaren, who won 11 Grand Prix on the bounce from Brazil to Belgium in 1988. 1988 saw the, saw the Marlborough liveried team win all bar one of the races that season. The Italian Grand Prix broke their duck despite Senna getting pole. So my question is, or my little quiz round, who broke their run of form? I'm looking for the team and the driver. Erhard Berger Ferrari. Points to you, Timo. Well, I say points to you. We're not adding that to your prediction tally, but consider them congratulatory points. Yeah, it was Gerhard Berger and Ferrari who uh, rather ruined McLaren's streak there, though they didn't actually 
look to be on form to win it. Um, I believe Prost retired with uh, crash damage and Senna also retired, though was classified with an engine issue. It was the only time reliability really hampered their season that year. But uh, interesting nonetheless that Red Bull looked to be on enough of a form to start to replicate those things from the golden years of Formula One that people hark back to, certainly with Schumacher at Ferrari and Senna at McLaren. However, that all barely gets into the whole tyre degradation. Ferrari looking at a three-stopper at one point. Yuki making an impressive send, but pushing it a little too far. Toto admitting to Lewis they've not given him a very good car. A power unit failure for Haas and by proxy Ferrari as well. I'm sure there's some other bits I've missed, but like I mentioned earlier, I was sort of listening to commentary on Le Shuttle on the way back from the Le Mans Classic. So there's probably some bits that have escaped my notes. So we'll move on to winners and spinners. And Timo, we'll start with your winner. A little bit left field, a little bit different. Well, I've gone for Jamie Chadwick, because you two kind of took the two obvious other winners, and Max is obviously in a postcode of his own, so it seems pointless to congratulate him on that, because he won't hear us, because he's so far away anyway. So I thought I'd go for Jamie Chadwick, because she got a first top 10 finish in the Indy Next category over in America over the weekend, and it's just a jolly good job from her, so I'm happy with that. That's a, that's a fair one to go for. I'll allow it. Ellie May, your winner. I realise I said them last week, but apart from Lando Loris, Lando what? Lando, Lando Loris. <laughs> or is he a small sort of tree-running marsupial, a slow Loris? Um, apart from Lando Loris, Ferrari. Um, I mean... Ferrari, they still have a lot of work to do. They still have their flaws, but I am going to look at the positives as I think they're the closest any team has really got to bringing any kind of fight to Red Bull. I say fight, it's probably a bit too strong. Red Bull is still dominant. Let's screw over our one driver who could have taken it to them and let Charles just hang around the back somewhere instead, though. Well, I mean, Leclerc was incredibly close to Verstappen's time in qualifying, which obviously then I guess, hindered them in the race because science was actually quicker the entire weekend. But anyway, it meant that there was very little margin for error on Verstappen's behalf in qualifying. And in the race, I'd say both Ferraris made the two Red Bulls sort of really fight for an overtake, sort of Leclerc less so on Max, but Sainz really fought with Perez and... At the end of it, Perez ended up 17 seconds behind Leclerc. So it's. Yeah, Carlos played an excellent team game, is what you're trying to say there. Yeah. And, but I think nonetheless, they certainly have the strongest car out of Aston Martin and Mercedes. It seems at the moment it's very track dependent on who out of those three are more dominant. But I think Ferrari are in a better position now than they were at the start of the year. So. If they can bring sort of that P2 fight in the championship, then bring it on. Yeah, I think you're still a bit optimistic from last week. If they can do this a good few races in a row, we can talk about it again and I might join you on that train. But for now, mm, cautious. I don't want you to get your hopes up. They've got a long way to go, Ferrari. I'm... I'm pleased to see they've had a good weekend. I'm hoping it's form that's going to carry on. 
we'll wait and see. Um, my winner, though, is a name that's already been bandied around, Lando Norris. Um, absolutely crackers weekend for him. And did what we sort of have seen from him at Austria before and continue to see from him is strong performances. Not quite the podium this year, but a fantastically blistering uh, race. And once all the penalties had been handed out, fourth place overall, not too bad. And it's really done some work for his overall standings in the season. It's bolstered him a long way up the rankings and really pushed him up into that fight with a few of the drivers ahead of him. So all good things come to those who wait. And he's certainly been waiting a few seasons for something decent to come his way. We'll move, though, into spinners. And Timo, again, you've gone for a left field option. Not too left field this time. Stewards, just because, like I said earlier, this is not a new problem at Australia. Maybe do something to solve it instead of trying to shuffle it all under the carpet and then Aston Martin just out of you, which I know it was Aston Martin that lodged it, but I fully believe it was Alonso who essentially told Aston Martin to do that. It's like, I've been noticing some things as I've been driving around. And I'm like, oh no, not again. What have you spotted this time, Fernando? It's like, well, if you look on this lap with this driver and all of these drivers, and they just built a case from there. And the fact that they missed so many laps that Aston Martin had to point out. I mean, I know it's mathematically possible, but the fact that it it does seem a little ridiculous that in a 71-lap race, they missed 83 laps. It makes sense when you look at it, but it just sounds silly. And when it's your job to be on top of all of that, and it's a track where you have this problem consistently, and you've done pretty much nothing to stop that problem, you go in the bin. Yeah, why they just didn't simply have more stewards? that would have probably solved the problem because then you can at least have more eyes keeping on top of things and staying a bit more ahead of it. Uh, Alex Albon in a post-race interview said that it was at, least, at some points it was 15 laps until he heard about one lap infringement, by which time he'd obviously accrued all the others and then obviously either a black and white flag for don't do it any more times or a penalty for doing it that extra time. And a lot of that that Esteban Ocon accrued so many that essentially the way it works is you get four, three instances of doing it. You then get your black and white flag. You then do it again, you get a five-second penalty. You do it again, you get a 10-second penalty. And then the system starts again. And he did that entire system twice over. So he got all of them, the black and white, a five, a 10, all of them, a black and white, another five, and another 10 to accrue his 30 seconds and again because there was none of this communication down to drivers and teams as to what on earth they were doing and if they're measuring it too millimetrically close and equally the fact that you cannot see where you're pointing the front wheels of those cars when you're going through those turns you sit so low in them and with the new wheel brows and the high-rise cockpit around you you can't really see where those front wheels are going we see it all the time with when they line up in pit boxes you just sort of guess that you've got to the track limit. You don't know if you've gone over it. So you need someone telling you don't push so much on the exit. And if the stewards aren't passing on that information, drivers haven't really got a hope in hell. Ellie May, your spinner, please. My spinner, Aston Martin, because it felt like they were sort of in no man's land a bit. It was just, it was okay, but it was just a bit of an off weekend. I mean, they were better than Mercedes, but. They weren't really near Ferraris either, from what I remember. I think I am sort of being a bit harsh because like Stroll was what fourth in the sprint and Alonso fifth. But I mean, Norris did much better than them, sort of in qualifying and in the race. 
Barb the sprint and they just also gave Lance an awful strategy they I mean the first pit stop they put the the first pit stop put him in 15th after they double snapped them just after the virtual safety car ended and they put him on a three-stop strategy I just I think they could have had a better weekend and got a better points haul than they really did I mean they got 12 points versus Mercedes 10 and Mercedes were I would I would have said a lot more off it than Aston Martin and so now they've only sort of slightly closed the gap by two points when they probably could have done a lot more. Plus they were aided by Mercedes getting a time penalty post-race so that obviously plays into it a little bit. Well didn't Hamilton and Russell just swap? I thought thought Hamilton was further ahead now a little bit. Wasn't he fifth or something? Was that? Um, it gets a bit confusing. Hang on. So across the line, fifth or sixth, I thought, and he um, went down to eighth. Sainz finished fourth and went down to sixth. Hamilton finished seventh oh, was and sorry. down to eighth. Gasly finished ninth, went down to tenth. Albon wasn't affected by his penalty. Logan Sargent got 15 seconds, wasn't affected by his. Estevan Ocon finished 12th, received a total of 30 seconds for um, his time limit penalty and thus finished 14th. Um, Nick DeVries finished 15th, received five seconds, forcing Kevin Magnussen off track and also received a total of 15 for his track limits. Um, so he finished, but uh, and so lost two places to finish 17th. Kevin Magnussen finished 19th received a five minute time second penalty for exceeding track five minutes five second time penalty for exceeding track limits but gained a position following yuki sonoda's penalty where sonoda finished 17th but received a total of 15 second time 15 second time penalties for exceeding track limits so essentially kevin magnuson was the only person to gain penalties and make up positions which is a testament to the long, long story short here. apologies eddie mate i got it wrong <laughs> yeah yeah Russell but you can understand how that happened. But anyway, I think regardless, Stroll should have finished higher than both Mercedes, and that was more down to poor strategy than anything else, or at least sandwich being a sandwich between them. He really had the opportunity to be closer to Hamilton, and he just wasn't. And I, or, yeah, essentially Hamilton by the time he finished, or sort of been closer to Russell, so that by the time that Hamilton had his penalty put in, he would have fallen behind Stroll. Um, yeah, it just wasn't a great weekend for Stroll, given what could have been and for where Alonso somehow ended up. Relatively quiet race for him, but somehow came home fifth in that entire melee. Um, not many drivers came away from that without any penalties or any track limit sort of notifications at all. I believe both McLarens were free of um, track limit notifications, as was Zhou Guan Yu. So great weekend for him, but overall a pretty shoddy weekend for Alfa Romeo, I will say. They are going on the list as my spinners. They have been off form for a fair while now. And I just want a bit more from them. Just, just a little bit more, guys. Come on. You can do better than this. Hopefully. I'll be surprised if we see anything from them until they become Audi, to be honest, because it just very much seems they're in this no man's land of we're here, but we're going to 
maybe do something, but don't expect anything from this. You like with Hess, you can tell they're really trying, but they're not they're kind of throwing everything at the wall and not much is sticking. Williams are like, we've got old technology, we're working this out. Albert Howard, we've kind of shit the bed and Helmut Marco's coming in and realized we need to make you close to Red Bull. And Alfred Mills is kind of we're also here, but we're not gonna do anything. Alfa Romeo is just biding its time till it becomes Audi, which is annoying. And equally, I was thinking about this over the weekend. I reckon we are possibly a season away from Bottas just going to WEC with Ferrari. I don't think it's too far. But, and he doesn't seem like he's totally invested in the F1 world. He seems quite happy with all these other things he's doing outside, which is fine. You can do that. That's your business. But with how valuable F1 seats are, I'd like to see a young driver in that seat maybe who even if you're not going to upgrade it, is going to push it every week. Like, well, I might as well have fun, try and do something. If you guys aren't going to help too much, then let me just go and earn my stripes, essentially. Yeah, he's now he's now taking, literally earlier today, took delivery of his Mercedes Project 1, the Mercedes F1 car for the road. It's got the Mercedes powertrain out, the W12 or whatever it was, shoehorn into the back of a road-going hypercar. He's picked up the keys to that. He currently has a very nice Ferrari that obviously he gets with his engine deal in the back of his Alfa Romeo. So there's no, there's no downside to being Alfa, Valtteri Bottas at the moment. You might as well just sort of sack it off and go off and enjoy drinking coffee, bring your own gin, running a little travel company that takes people to F1 races and gravel bike racing. It's, why not? He's essentially taken over Kimi, hasn't he? He's joined Alfa Romeo and it's just having, he's just there having yeah, he, fun. He's just become the quiet Finn at the back of the field, just going, I don't care. I'm enjoying my best life. <laughs> Anyhow. You were... Salva slash Audi because obviously if you're if you're Alfa Romeo you're not you're leaving so you're not particularly interested in bringing any more money into the team or anything like that to really sort of see any improvement so if you were sort of Audi would you in some ways try to start investing in it now so that you're not so far behind in 2026 because if they just have a lull until now they're going to be really far behind I'd be doing that with the drivers as well and be really analysed because if you can have a driver with a car that you're not developing too much but you're putting a bit of money into, maybe you see who wins F2 this year, you put them in because you kind of put them through the George Russell paces of you're going to have a couple of years in a duff car but by the but then with everything that we have invested, we should be able to give you something half decent in 26 and you've kind of got all of your rookie mistakes out of the way by then. Yeah, there's there's definitely reason to be bringing in a junior to this or someone new to Formula One, certainly. I reckon it'd be quite interesting to see maybe a um, Alex Pelot, I reckon, would be an interesting one to sort of drag into it. Obviously, Rookies, can we just get an F2 driver to actually win a championship and get a seat in F1 the following year for once? Bring in Drogovic then. Yeah, fine. Drogovic, Vesti, whoever. Just make it an F2 champion that doesn't have to wait 10 years to get into that damn seat. Arguably poor chair, but I've lost track of the F2. Yeah, but I've lost track of the F2. Is he still second at the moment? Is he second too? I've lost Vesti. I've lost track of F2. And Iwas is not far behind him. Vesti's got a bit of a gap on him now, and Vesti and Iwas are only about four points off him. 
spicy times in F2. But yeah, there's definitely reason that there should be someone else in that Alfa Romeo seat. And I don't know, I'd like to see it happen possibly then this year. Bottas just goes, yep, I've had my fun, goodbye. And we see someone make that move up. And I think by all rights, it should be Porcher. He's been linked with that seat for so long. It'd be nice for him to finally get it. Uh, it just depends who does the best by the end of the F2 season uh, we'll move on to other drivers worth a mention and there's only one name on the list here really it's Hulkenberg yes I think well he had a superb qualifying and sprint shootout to get 8th and 4th and then the race he was unlucky obviously the engine failed him but in the sprint the man was flying I mean he got up to 2nd at one point before his tyres overcooked and had to pit for sticks. but even after that he had a brilliant comeback on lap 20 he overtook Gasly for 8th who is a, a much that's a much better car than a Haas albeit different strategies some staying on intermediate some going to slicks but even then he was 8 seconds behind Norris yet managed to not only close the gap but get past him on lap 23 and then got Ocon on the same lap for 6th in a Haas it was just, I mean, when I saw that he was sort of eight seconds behind Norris, I was like, yeah, he'll never close that gap. And he did it. And I thought, this was my lap two thoughts of the sprint, which was early on sort of before this sort of happened. But I was thinking the main problem that the Haas car has is that it overcooks its tyres too quickly. But it allowed for racing that we wouldn't usually see in the sprint as because of the damp conditions, it was obviously cooler. This meant that early on in the start of the sprint, Kevin Magnussen was able to warm up his tyres much quicker than the Mercedes, who are known to struggle with warming up their tyres. So it meant that when Magnussen and Russell were fighting at the start of the sprint, Magnussen was able to fend him off because his grip was far more superior. So I guess that's only sort of has a silver lining in that they can heat their tyres up really quickly before overcooking them. If they can kind of get that sorted. It is this weird thing of the promise that they show. It's like, ooh, ooh, you've cracked it. Oh, no, no, you haven't. Oh, but they keep showing these glimmers of they know what they're doing and it just feels like it's more happy accidents than deliberate trial and error on certain things. And it's it's very interesting that it's Hulkenberg that most of the good stuff is happening to, and Magnussen is having an absolutely torrid time of it. So I wonder if there might be a change there and they get a different experienced driver or if other teams start looking at Hulkenberg because he's been out of the sport for a good while now as well. So Haas might have to work a bit harder at keeping him in that seat if something really left field happens during silly season. I would really like to see him in a top team. He almost obviously had his chance with Mercedes, but Hamilton went there instead. Stick him in the Red Bull. Yeah. Basically. There we go. Sorted. <laughs> Would certainly shake things up. Speaking of shaking things up, though, it's been a slight change in form when it comes to our predictions. Two points for Timo for a max poll and a max win. And for once... Two points for me for a max win and a max fastest lap. And Don't do it again. trailing behind. One point for Ellie May with trailing just a max fastest behind. lap. Where am I in the standings? Come That's on. not relevant. We're only talking Come about on. the results. No, 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 no. No, no. 
Read out the standings. Find <sighs> the right tab on my big Google Sheets. Um, bum, 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 bum. I did also send uh, a photo to Jesse that at some point I did get my prediction right. It just happened on, to be on lap 25 and that was it. Which, to be fair, anyway, if you'd said this is going to happen on lap 25, we'd have had to give you the point. Yeah. But it didn't. So yeah, your Leclerc was Verstappen, that, that was the podium at the end of the race. So as yeah. a result, you only got one point. I mean, it doesn't particularly matter. You're on 24 points overall. Team was on 17, and I'm on nine. But <laughs> you haven't even got double figures yet. You've got two Shut points. up. I'm getting there slowly. Fuck me. Slowly. Um, but that's 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 how our predictions are looking. How is it looking for constructors countdown? Alpha Tauri still trail the league, five points adrift of Williams in P9. There's a change in the order for P8 and P7, with Haas leapfrogging the Italo-Swiss outfit of Alfa Romeo, 11 points leads nine. McLaren still sit in sixth place, though after Austria, they have closed the gap to Alpine from 27 to 18. Alpine retained fifth after a weekend that ought to have gone better, and Ferrari closed their gap to Aston Martin from 32 points, leaving Canada to 21 as we head to Silverstone. Mercedes cling on to second, but their lead over the Silverstone-based team shortens to just three points and leading the championship surely on for a record-setting year on the same amount of points as Ferrari, Mercedes, McLaren, Alfa Romeo and Williams combined, it's Red Bull. From the real world of the Formula One constructors to the fantasy world of our fantasy Formula One teams and Timo, I'll let you run through this section. Well, Austria itself, it was the usual two at the top, or usual three, really, because we had two in joint P2. We had Francisco Rose with 438 points, Alex H9VT and Arg both in P2 on 395 points. I think, unless I've missed a team somewhere, I've somehow ended up on top for Austria with on the curbs with 335 points. EMT racing not far behind P13, 325 points. And then the first of Jesse's teams, Jehovah racing on 316 in P16. I may, I'd be surprised if I haven't missed a team there, but I, there wasn't an obvious name that I associated with you. I'm um, sorry, I must have done better than that. I must have done. Logic would say, but at the same time, yeah. we've only got nine points in the, in the other standing, so I don't know. Ah, no, all right, that's all races. This is just for the Austrian Grand Prix, yeah? Just for Austria, yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. Mid bench racing didn't end below Jaffa Cake Racing and BRT Yamaha 30th. Oh, poo. When did it go so wrong from mid beds? Usually they're doing all right. It's just not down the middle enough. Anyway, overall in the standings, Arg is leading the way with 2,786 points. Francisco Rose in P2 with 2,779 points. And Alex H9 V2 with 2,735. It is kind of back to normal as we'd expect it in the overall standings for the three of us with EMT Racing in P9 now with 2,352 points. Jeff and Cake Racing in P11 with 2,159 points. And I'm in P14 on 2,058 points. And all the way down in P33 with a whopping 636 points to its name is Experiment Underdog. Look, this is the first time I'm leading. It's always been Jesse, I think. Yes. So I'm now leading both. Yes. Yes. But you lost the race to me somehow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it won't last. Don't worry. No, about it. no, <laughs> no. 
No. Midbeds Racing, 8th. EMT Racing, 9th. Oh, Jaffa Cake yeah. Racing, 11th. You, I just you, never associate that team name with you, so I just ignore it. Yeah, yeah well, you should you should remember a bit more. Um, oh, sorry, this is really, really left field. You can take it out if you want. Um, I ended up looking on Urban Dictionary um, about what, well, what Urban Dictionary says about your two towns that you live in. It's quite okay. amusing. Well, this is staying in now, but I'm I'm curious as to what it says. Go on. Um, I realise you're also about to dox both of us on the podcast, but hey. <laughs> yeah, so maybe don't. I, I won't say your actual... Full address and postcode. Yeah. Uh, so Jesse's is a town in Bedfordshire next to a well-known historic market town, won't say. Um... Jesse's town is home to the country's most expensive Tesco's. It also has a large council estate and many chaps. It is likely most people have never and will never go there in their lifetime. <laughs> the Tesco's is very expensive. Yeah, that's all I'm going to comment on that to say being completely cancelled on the internet. <laughs> um, I'm laughing, but I'm laughing with fear and trepidation as to what's lying in wait for me. Uh, so Timo's is a small, crazy town in the southwest of Ireland that is renowned for parties and exceptional piss-ups, as well as its party-crazed locals. And that, is that, that was by a person called Seaman in 2007. How are they spelling that? Uh, S-E-M-E-N. Ah, never mind. I was hoping <laughs> for a mispronunciation. No, no. Um... I guess it's only fair if I do mine. Um, well, I've had this had nothing to do with anything. Well, it reminded me because when he was saying North, what was it? Midbeds Racing. Midbeds Racing. But it reminded me because I was watching, I was, no, I was listening to Smith and Sniff podcast and they were both talking about Somerset because Johnny Smith is from Somerset and Richard Porter currently lives in Somerset. And I was remembering sort of how you both. Poo-poo. Somerset. I do not. You don't poo-poo. Why have we poo-pooed Somerset? Well, more Bristol. Yeah, but that's fair. But, that's, but, yeah. the, but Somerset is also home to Bath Other places. Bar, so it's different. Yes, but anyway, mine is a small racist village set in the majestic Somerset countryside. Habited by the posh traps who work in Bristol and like the idea of living in the country, or chaps who are looking for the next boom to sniff. Due to the historical location of my village, it is surrounded by farmers who have nothing better to do than take stepladders on the moors to get friendly with local wildlife or plan ways to take anyone down who isn't local. Very much a local town for local people. Do I fit in the Posh twat or a chav that's looking for the next blue to sniff. I do listen to the Sniff and Smith podcast. I'm going to avoid passing comment on that and move on to the next section, if that's the option you're giving us, which is simply the conclusion to this week's podcast. It's had a bit of a weird ending. Um, thank you all very much for listening. And we'll be back with some feeder series content in the next day, I suppose. And shortly after that, we'll be back with a preview for the British Grand Prix as the Formula One Circus moves back to the UK. 
In the meantime, though, if you want any more from the three of us, uh, Timo, where can the people find you? You can find me over on Is It Fast, Paddock's Rarity, On The Curbs, and the Nitro RX podcast, as well as Instagram, of course. Excellent. Ellie May, where can the people find you? Uh, you can find me over on our Instagram page doing the graphics or our track guides or over on TikTok. And if you want more from me in the meantime, you can pick up the latest issue of Classic Car Weekly or go and follow me across the social medias on Instagram and Twitter and maybe even subscribe to my own YouTube channel where I promise I will eventually get some video content edited on the MG and get it posted sometime soon, maybe, I don't know. But on Instagram, there's loads of pretty pictures from Le Mans, so go and look at those. And we'll be back for the British Grand Prix.